Welcome to the Social Exchange Podcast. I have two guests on today's show. My first guest is Tessie Castillo. Tessie is a journalist and an author from North Carolina. Her new book is called Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row. And that book is what I will be discussing with her today. Tessie volunteered to teach a writing class to death row inmates at North Carolina's Central Prison. She treasured the experience as she learned to respect and understand these inmates, her students, as human beings, as people with a prologue, people who have the capacity to develop, to make positive contributions to society. But she found the prison system to be oppressive, unable and unwilling to give some of these men the chance to live their full potential. She wrote an op-ed to this effect to her local paper, and when it was published, she was swiftly banned from doing volunteer work at any North Carolina prisons. Eventually, Tessie, along with a group of four death row inmates with whom she developed a working relationship, collaborated on this new book. They dispel myths about what it means to be a prisoner, what it means to be on death row, and told fascinating and poetic stories about their respective lives. Also joining me today is one of Tessie's co-authors, George Wilkerson. George called in from the prison, and he offered an incredibly interesting invitation into his own story about his past, and offered his ideas about writing, growth, friendship, and life. Despite being on death row, George is, of course, now an author, and he's also an award-winning artist. And you can find links to both George and Tessie's work in the show notes. Now enjoy episode number 54 of the Social Exchange Podcast. I'm here with Tessie Castillo. Tessie, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. Appreciate the invitation. I'm going to pre-record an introduction, so by now people will already know a little bit about you, like that you're a journalist, you're from Raleigh, you wrote the book Crimson Letters where your co-authors are actually for the men who have been sentenced to death, all of whom are currently living out their sentence. So that leaves me with so many questions, and in particular, about your process of creating it. If I could just put a placeholder there and back up half a step, could you tell listeners a little bit about yourself um, more generally? Like, what's your background and how did that lead to a career writing articles and now books? Well, I've been spending the past 10 years working in the field of harm reduction and drug policy reform. I got involved a few years ago, really by accident. Uh, I was unemployed and sorting through the Craigslist back when they used to post jobs on Craigslist. I don't know if they still do. And I found this job description for someone who would be willing to work with folks who were using drugs um, and sex workers. And so I applied for the job and I got it probably mostly because it was a really tiny organization and, and they didn't have a lot of people apply anyways for that position. Mm. And I started doing it. I didn't have a much of a background at that point in drug policy or criminal justice or incarceration. I wasn't very aware of the issues. But once I got involved in that job, it seemed like every single day I would have a, a what the fuck moment. Where I would just learn something about the criminal justice system, about uh, the way that racism is tied into it, about the um, injustices that happen to people even after they've served their sentences, uh, about the way that we treat folks who are, are using drugs who may have a mental health issue and how we treat them as criminals and, and it exacerbates the problem. Just every day 
learning about the system and how it works and being just in utter disbelief that these things are legal, that this is how the world works. And that got me more and more interested in these issues. And once I got involved um, with volunteering on death row, I experienced the exact same, I can't believe this is real moments when I started learning about the death penalty as well. And I continue to have those moments even now. It's incredible what, what uh, we are capable of uh, when we discriminate against a particular group of people. You described some of your first visits to the central prison in the book. That's where you began volunteering, as you said, five, six years ago. You didn't start volunteering there with the intention to write a book. So what did bring you there? And did you, did you seek out the opportunity or did it fall in your lap, uh, given all the other work you were doing? Um, so it happened by accident also. <laughs> I think most important things in my life have happened by accident. <laughs> I was actually at a Super Bowl party. And I am not much of a football person. And so I was over by the, the chip dip, basically just stuffing my face. And this guy wandered over and we started talking. And turns out he was a prison psychiatrist and he worked specifically with death row um, prisoners. And that was fascinating to me. So I started asking him a bunch of questions about what, what, is, what are people like on death row and what is your job like? And um, he let me know that the prison had just recently allowed volunteers to come in and teach classes and that they were actively looking for volunteers. And so at that point, I volunteered myself as a writer to go in and teach a writing class. And I ended up going through the application process and I was approved and I got in. I was teaching the class for several months. Uh, and, and it was a really incredible experience. Uh, I'll never forget my first day. I just walked into the prison. I'd never been in this prison before. And I just had to go through corridor after corridor, these really dark, echoey, gloomy, sort of labyrinth of corridors um, to get to the death row building, which is housed separately from all the rest of the prison. They're sort of quarantined by themselves back there. Uh, and I got into this classroom and I sat down and it was empty and I was waiting for the guys to come in and thinking to myself, oh my God, was this a good idea? <laughs> this sounded great at the Super Bowl party. I was really excited. <laughs> Do I really want to be doing this. Um, and then the guys walked into the room in their blood red jumpsuits, which is a very deliberate color uh, on the part of the prison. And they sat down and they kind of looked at me and I looked at them and it was really awkward at first. Uh, they were somewhat distrustful of me, I think, at first. Um, as many people in prison are distrustful of people on the outside, they've been betrayed many times, of course. And I didn't know what, quite what to make of them or whether they were the, what all the stories say or, or whether they were something different. But we got to know each other, and because it was a, a writing class, they were writing about their lives primarily and their childhoods. And so I was able to get to know them very quickly and very deeply because of that writing class. And I just met guys of, of every background. Um, I remember one of them who uh, suffered severe mental illness, and he stuttered when he spoke, 
And when he would write essays for our class, they were almost completely incoherent. And I had trouble helping him because I didn't even know where to start. But when he wrote poetry, he was brilliant. He would just write these, these poetic lyrics and, and they were haunting and, and gorgeous. And when he read his poetry, he never stuttered. It was the only time I never heard him stutter. And I just remember thinking, wow, <laughs> what does the world look like for this man? And I bet the world feels like an essay for him. And what mm. would his life be different if the world were more like a poem? Um, or if we were just able to reach him on the level that poetry reaches him? Uh, and I met just a lot of other different personalities. I had one guy compare himself to Martin Luther King on one of our first days of class, and I was very uncomfortable with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and another guy who could not take criticism in any form. And if you told him his comma was in the wrong place, he would give you a 10-minute uh, monologue defending himself. <laughs> and there was another guy, uh, JT who was the oldest in the class, he had been on death row almost 30 years at the time that I taught the class. And he actually, so there's a moratorium on executions in North Carolina that started in 2006. And he was the very last person scheduled to be executed before that moratorium took effect. So he mm -hmm. came within a couple of days of his own death. And that man, I mean, you can tell that he's been through it. Uh, he just has this aura around him that's total zen. Just this man has been through a lot and he has made peace with his life. And he was sort of the wise elder of the class and, and he was always encouraging the other men in the room um, and just so peaceful and calm and, and this presence. And I loved being around him. And I've kept in touch with him actually. And a couple years ago, he called me and he sounded scared and I'd never heard him scared before and he said Tessie oh my god I have to tell you something and I don't know how you're going to react to this and I was just thinking holy shit <laughs> like what'd you do man this this guy's never been nervous before and he told me I just have to tell you I've never said this to people in the 30 years that I've been on death row but I want you to know that I'm gay um, and he's since then come out to people at the prison and they've reacted uh, fairly positively from what he tells me. Um, so he's uh, continuing to tell his family and things like that. But those are just some stories of the guys I've gotten to know, even the ones not involved with the book. It's been an incredible experience. So first of all, if I, if I could just summarize a few of those things, it sounds like Super Bowl parties are a gateway drug to prison volunteer work. Yes. <laughs> um, and at, no, really, in all seriousness, when you were just describing going into death row for the first time, it's your first day volunteering. You're a young woman about to walk into a high security prison for men. What was going through your mind? What were the anxieties that were playing out? Um, <laughs> I was a little I was worried about how they would react to me. And it didn't help that when I got to death row, I was greeted by a sergeant, one of the correctional officers who worked there. And his first comment to me was, don't shake their hands, because if you do, they're just going to masturbate everywhere. And I don't want to clean up 
the jizz off the walls. Uh, and that was, was your, that was your greeting. That was my greeting. <laughs> really, real nice. From the correctional officer, um, and and he continued to be very um, disgruntled every time he saw me come into the prison. Did anything like that sort of play out? Did did weird things happen that you feel like would only happen in the walls of a prison? I mean, definitely in terms of people, uh, what I would call overreacting to things. Um, like one time, there was a um, I was in the parking lot. I remember I was walking into the prison. And there was a woman, a middle-aged woman, I assume she was a mother of someone in the prison. And she was just waving to him from the window. The, the guy was inside the prison looking out of a window and she was waving to him. And when we got into the prison, one of the correctional officers just completely berated her for having waved to, I would assume was her son, um, just brought her to tears over that. Uh, and it was, they said it's a security risk, you know, waving, that could be a signal. Um, and it just struck me that this is the level of fear that people within the prison operate on, that something as simple as a warm gesture, a, a wave to a family member could be seen as a threat. And one time I was in the prison, they, they give tours in the prison. Uh, they bring groups in there like college age students or, or legislators and they give them a tour of death row and there's actually a wall of glass in death row so people can look inside exactly like a zoo. They just bring people in there and they, they watch the guys on death row from behind this thick glass uh, and the correctional officers talk about them and it's just really bizarre and, and dehumanizing. So you were primed to believe that something bad would happen and it was going to be by virtue of inmates doing something bad. But you yeah. saw that the poorest behavior happened by people who worked in the prison system. That was the poorest behavior that I saw. Yeah. I mean, I remember the, the orientation, the volunteer orientation that we were given, uh, which was basically all uh, they taught us in the orientation, getting us ready to volunteer was these men are cons. They will con you. They will only lie to you. Don't believe anything they say. So yes, we were primed not to trust them. Um, I will say that most of the correctional officers that I interacted with in the prison uh, were very kind, but there are definitely a few who have stood out. You taught this journaling class and then I, I get presumably that's what led into a book project. Now, how did that happen? And how did you decide on the four men um, whom you chose for the project? So I was doing the journaling class. And after doing that for some time and really getting to know the men, I decided that I wanted to write uh, to the newspaper about my experiences. Because someone had recently been um, arrested for murder, and the newspapers were talking about pursuing the death penalty. And it was just all you know, kill him, kill him, that he's a monster, comments in the newspaper. And I just felt like I needed to say something. Not very many people have had the privilege to actually meet people who are on death row. And I felt that as one of the few people who actually knows who's in there and what they're like, I had an obligation to say something and to correct some of the misconceptions. So I wrote a, an op-ed to the local newspaper and it got published. And for that, the prison uh, retaliated by dismissing me as a volunteer. 
and I've never been allowed back in to any North Carolina prison. Uh, so after that, I, I wrote letters to the men who had been my former students, and I wrote to them for a while, and it sort of, some of them only wrote back one or two times, and, and I ended up with a core group of five or six who I was writing to regularly. And so I ended up asking those guys if they would participate in the book project when I when I had the first idea for a book. And it, it was, I was very naive at the time. I thought that, that they would jump at the idea to collaborate on a book and, and to get their voices heard. And I thought it was a great idea and it was going to be a great project. Um, but they all reacted very differently. Uh, Michael Braxton, who's one of my co-authors, actually got angry with me and completely cut off correspondence because he got suspicious. Um, this was something I had never thought about, but, but people in death row are often contacted by journalists or documentary people who want their stories and who will go in there and get their stories and then sort of sensationalize it, you know, these are the killers um, kind of a thing, or they'll go and they'll maybe do a great project, but they'll keep all the money. Um, so there's a lot of exploitation that goes on. And so his immediate thought was that that's what I was doing, that I was either trying to steal his stories and make money off them, or um, that I was going to tell the stories in a way that was sensationalized. And so he cut off correspondence. One of my other coworkers, Lyle, also did not want to participate initially. Um, so I got a range of, of mistrust, and I hadn't expected that at first. But now I, I know better, and I understand where that comes from, and that it's not about me personally. It's, it's about their actual experiences with other people throughout their lives, and that's why the, the mistrust comes from. But How did course, you regain trust? <laughs> Um, I basically wrote back to them and said, I completely understand. And if you don't want to participate in the book project, um, I won't ask you to, but I would mm. still like to be your friend. And so we continued writing for a while after that. And eventually they, they relented and agreed to be part of the book project. Uh, well, one of the other guys, there were five originally, eventually decided not to become a book, part of the book project. Um, and that was over issues with like who would own the writing and also issues collaborating with each other because the men are not necessarily friends with each other. Co-authors. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. I don't know if you feel like you're at liberty to say this, but would you say that some of them are adversaries? Not adversaries, no. There's just, prisons are just a breeding ground for mistrust. There's mistrust between people inside the prisons. There's mistrust between them and people on the outside. Um, those are just natural things. And, and we have had to work through those issues throughout this entire process, even now. Besides that sort of interpersonal aspect, what were some of the difficulties just getting this project together? I know that there were some things just about the way that prisons work and the way that you're able or not able to communicate. Would you mind talking about some of those things? Yeah, so we were at first limited only to snail mail. The only way we were able to do it is that the guys would send me the essays that they had written, and I would um, suggest edits and write those on the document and send them back, and they would have to rewrite them by hand. They don't have computers. 
So every edit they make and every time they rewrite something, they have to rewrite the whole thing by hand. Um, and so we would go back and forth and that just takes a really long time. And there are issues with things like, there are just a lot of almost business decisions that have to be made. Things like, are we going to try to self-publish or are we going to look for a publisher and which publisher is appropriate and what kind of contract terms are we willing to accept? There is an actual law in North Carolina that prohibits people in prison from being compensated for their work. Not only that, but if they do produce work and are compensated for it, then the state has a right to notify the victim's families and the victim's families have the right to sue for that money. Wow. Sue whom? The, the prisoners themselves? I believe so. Wow. Um, so that's something that we have to navigate too, those kinds of discussions. It's just, it's very complicated. The whole process was complicated. Uh, deciding the title for the book, deciding the cover for the book, deciding all of these different decisions had to be made through letters that were being sent to four different people. So sometimes they would get back to me uh, and like one would get back very quickly and one would take two months to write back. Um, often they completely disagreed and I was sort of left with, okay, which person do I piss off? You know, it wasn't like we could get together in a conference call all at the same time and discuss the issues and come to a consensus. I would get different opinions from different guys and would either have to try to convince them, which meant more letters, or I would just have to make a decision about it and then explain why I made that decision. So collaboration could have meant weeks, months added on to the process yeah. and swift action might've meant a few, maybe even still a few days added on, but then left people with a bad taste in their mouth. Potentially, yeah. Did you get any help from people who weren't in prison, just people who were able to help you through some of the, the difficulties and technical issues that you had? Um, when I was writing the book, I did have a, what do you call it? A critique group that I was part of. And they would help me edit the essays. And they would also provide feedback on those. Um, other than that, I've had a lot of help since the book has been published with things like my brother who's been working on my website for me and my sister-in-law who's been putting together graphic design things so that we can advertise the book. Um, so I've had collaboration since then in, in that realm. For someone who had no idea what to expect when you first walked into the prison, one or two major misconceptions that you think people have about what death row is like or, or what people are like in prison. Um, even if they were your own misconceptions? I think a lot of people picture men who've been convicted of murder as monsters, as either so severely uh, mentally ill that, that they can't control themselves, uh, or just that they've got some core of evil inside of them somewhere. And that could not be farther from the truth. The men who I was working with in the prison, they definitely had a lot of flaws and, and there were a lot of things about them I didn't like, but there were, but these are the exact same things that I find outside of prison in coworkers and neighbors <laughs> and people who I interact with out here. 
Um, and they also had so many redeeming qualities and so many things they did like about them, just like you would find on the outside. And I truly believe that if you had sat that exact same group of people down in a different setting and had taken off the red jumpsuits, that no one would be able to tell that anyone in that room uh, had been convicted of a violent crime. That a lot of people in those circumstances have been hit with just bad moral luck. That is circumstances beyond their control. Do you have a sense that that's true about people's backgrounds that perhaps if things worked out in their environment that was more fortunate for them, that they probably would have pursued life paths that would have led to, you know, something beyond where they are now? Absolutely. I mean, when you hear the the stories, the, the men who collaborated on this book, they all come from very different backgrounds. Every single one of them is a different race. They're all a different religion. They all come from different parts of North Carolina, and they were raised in very different ways and very different households. But what's true for all of them and from everyone else who I met who was in my class on death row is just this brutality in their background going back from when they were very small children and continuing up until prison and during the prison sentence. It's just uh, there's been abuse and torture and broken homes and a lack of adequate mentors, a lack of protection from anyone, not from the schools, not from social workers, not from law enforcement, uh, just a, a breakdown of opportunities to help them where they should have gotten help, where someone should have intervened and did not. Um, and they all eventually ended up getting involved in some level of, of crime at a young age. And then it just escalated and escalated until they wound up on, on death row. Did you learn anything new about yourself throughout this experience? Yeah, I learned how naive I was. <laughs> <laughs> I was very naive. I just thought um, so many things. Oh, I'm going to make friends with these four guys in prison, and we're going to write this book together, and it's going to be great. Uh, and the reality of the interpersonal politics and, and the things that we had to deal with has has been to the point where there were many times throughout the writing of this book where I didn't think we were going to make it. There were times when I wanted to give up. There were times when some of them wanted to give up. And thankfully, we never all gave up at the same time. And there was always someone who was there to basically convince the rest of us to keep going. <laughs> and I, I'm really grateful for that. But yeah, I was very naive thinking that this would all just work out really well. And, and even now, the promotional part of of a book is extremely challenging as well. It's an incredible amount of hard work for, for no money at all, basically. And so we're faced with things like, how long can I do this uh, without a paycheck? And how, how do you sell books? And what's the best way to spend our time? And how can they meaningfully contribute from inside the prison? And those kind of things. What's the most treasured thing that you've gained since meeting one another, you and, and the four co-authors? and working together and just throughout the entire process? There are so many things. It's hard to choose one. I mean, one thing that has been wonderful for me, so, so just sitting here and listening to you interview George, for example, um, and we've gone on other podcasts and uh, they've interviewed other of my co-authors. So we've all been interviewed at this point. Hmm. And for me to sit and just listen to 
from my standpoint, the truly remarkable responses that my co-authors give to these questions that they were not prepared for ahead of time. Yeah. Um, just the level-headedness that they respond with, the emotional maturity that they're showing, for me, just makes the, at times, really difficult challenges of the past four years so worth it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I love those moments. I love that we didn't give up however close we came and that we got to this point and that they're able now to really put their voices out there literally like through a radio through a podcast so that people hear them and i just feel this sense of pride for for who they've become while they've been in prison um and and i'm proud of us for making it this far and, and giving them the opportunity to speak if you had one thing that you were able to tell the public or tell listeners right now about any one of or all four of your co-authors, what is something that you'd, you'd like people to know about them? So um, these, these guys, each in their own way, they have spent the past few decades on death row or, or a couple decades searching for a purpose beyond punishment while they serve their prison sentences. For mm -hmm. each one of them, it's very important that, that they not go down like this, that they not go down as committing um, or being convicted of, of terrible crimes, and that's all anyone remembers about them. And they have struggled momentously, all of them, in, in their different ways to find something that gives them purpose. And I know for Lyle, for example, his thing is education. He thinks that higher education... GED classes should be available for everyone in prison. And he's not just thinking that, but he writes about that and publishes about that. He has tried to fundraise so that people on death row can take GED classes because the prison won't pay for them. So he tried to fundraise himself to help them. Um, he himself is pursuing an associate's degree from behind bars, which has been very challenging for him. Uh, and this is just his baby, and it's something he really believes in and works tirelessly on. And uh, for for Alim, uh, his faith, he's Muslim, is the most important thing for him, and he's a spiritual leader inside the prison and someone who's a mentor to the other guys and is able to talk them off the ledge sometimes. Um, and he's also very close to his family. Um, George also is a spiritual leader and an incredible writer and is sharing his writing with the world. He's, he's award-winning, actually. His um, essays and poems have won multiple awards, national awards. Shantan is, is just the most delightful person. <laughs> he's, just, he's just delightful. And everyone who comes in contact with him is, is moved by him. He's the kind of person who will just break out into song for no reason. Um, and so each of them has their own thing that, that gives them purpose. And, and I love watching them cultivate that and, and grow those, those talents and those gifts and share them. Were you ever forced into sort of a state of dissonance between, you know, you've met these people, you enjoy these people, you see that they have purpose and value to add to you, to society. You seem to believe that the entire system within which they're being held is just it's just dysfunctional on the other hand these people have 
ostensibly committed crimes worthy of the the most strict punishment that there possibly could be. Did you ever have a second guess or a, a questioning of yourself about the crimes that these people committed in the past? And maybe there's an element of these people that you're, you don't really know and you'll never get to know? Um, that's definitely something that, especially in the beginning, was an issue, um, especially with the message from the prison, which was these are con men and they're very good at conning people very mm. fresh in my mind uh, where I would worry about that, that, that I was being conned and that they weren't who I thought they were. Um, but at this point, I mean, if this, <laughs> this is a con project is a very long one. <laughs> I've never asked for a single thing, not for money, not for favor, not for anything. <laughs> right. Um, so I have to believe at this point in my own judgment that I know them well enough to believe that what I see is, is true. So I would say that at this point, my, I'm not concerned about the crimes that they were convicted of because I'm able to understand that people are more than the worst things that they, they do. And also that in every case, these crimes happened uh, well over a decade ago, sometimes two or even three decades ago. And that who they were then is not who they are now. But the issue that I have struggled with the most as far as dissonance is the effect of a book like this on the victims' families. Mm. Uh, and, and that's something I, that kept me up at night for a long time and, and in some ways still does. What, will, what would it be like for someone whose family member was killed in one of these crimes to read a book like this? And right. to see or hear people talking about the man convicted of killing their child in a way that's, that's positive. Um, and I wonder about that. Uh, and I had a lot of doubts initially about whether I would even do this project because of that. And there, there's basically a, a couple of things that I have settled on um, telling myself reasons that I decided to go ahead with the book. And, and one of them is that like so many people, I'm, tired of the discourse in our society which is so simplistic overly simplistic and um sort of in sound bites all the time where you've got for example your liberal news media who's feeding these liberal sound bites that are oversimplified um, and, and getting everybody riled up and then you've got the conservatives on the other side who are feeding their conservative sound bites and getting everybody riled up and nobody really has a full picture of what's going on or a nuanced picture of what's going on and that frustrates me and I see it happen with the death penalty over and over again where we get these really quick sound bites like this guy's a monster look at the horrible thing he did the fairest thing would be just to kill him. And we don't get that more nuanced portrait of what's really happening. And we don't even understand the death penalty system itself and how it operates and how it's not just as simple as, oh, the worst murderers are the ones who get the death penalty. That's actually absolutely untrue. <laughs> and I can talk about that uh, in a minute if you want. But I wanted to put out a story that is more complex than the one that we're generally told about people who get the death penalty. And the book is not about painting the men positively. If, if you read it, you actually find there's quite a bit in there that, that puts them in somewhat of a negative light. 
And the reason for that is that I wanted to be real. I didn't want to just cherry pick the best things about them. And I know I've spoken about them in glowing terms, but, but I don't always get along with them either. <laughs> mm. I'll be honest about that. We have personality issues sometimes. Um, but I think that it's important to know that and, and to see that complexity and, and to understand that because there is harm in, in these really quick soundbite things. And so that's why I decided, one reason I decided to put out the book. And also because I feel like as a society, we place a lot of emphasis on the grief of the victim's families, as we should. They're going through hellish pain. Then also the families of the people on death row are also going through hellish pain because they've also lost a child. Uh, And we don't allow their voices to be heard. We don't allow them to grieve openly. And so I wanted to be part of of opening up that space as well. Um, and since I've put out this book, I've had a lot of people who whose children or, or brothers or sisters are facing the death penalty or on death row who have reached out to me uh, who want to talk about that and, and who say thank you for finally telling our side of the story. Because so I felt that was important. Like you mentioned, how about people who are families of victims? Have you reached out to any, have any reached out to you or do you anticipate that happening? So when I, in the very early stages of the book, when I was thinking about the effect on the victims' families, I wanted to warn them basically um, that this was coming. And not only that, but I originally wanted to also get their stories and have them write and collaborate to the book too, if, if they were interested in it. So I reached out to, I mean, obviously I don't have the names and addresses <laughs> of the victims' families. I don't know right. who they are, who they are, and, and these crimes happened decades ago. Um, so I reached out to a, uh, the largest victims' advocacy network in North Carolina, and I asked for their advice, and I told them what I was doing, and I told them that I wanted to warn the victims' families or, or to, to reach out to them ask them if they wanted to participate. Um, And the organization that I spoke to advised against that. So I ended up, I couldn't do anything without them. So I didn't. But since the book has come out, I have also been contacted by families, not of victims of my co-authors, but uh, other people who've lost someone to murder. So far, I haven't had any people contact me in anger, although I anticipate that that will happen. But so far, it's actually been a, a positive experience. Just people who also want their stories told. You mentioned that there is um, people have an idea about the kinds of crimes that inspire a death row sentence. Did you want to tease that apart a little bit? So the the most common misconception I think about the death penalty as a whole, and I had this misconception myself when I went to death row, is that everyone knows that thousands of murders occur in the United States every year, but that only a very select few people wind up on death row. And so the assumption is that those people who get to death row must be the ones who committed the worst of the worst crimes, the the ones involving children, the serial killers, the ones where they torture their victims before they kill them, just really heinous crimes. That is completely untrue. I have discovered. Um, It is true that a lot of people on death row were convicted of very heinous crimes, 
But it is also true that there are a lot of people who committed heinous crimes who are not on death row. It is also true that there are people on death row who did not kill anyone at all. And I'm not just talking about people who, who are innocent. I'll give actually a very concrete example. So in my, in my class, in my journaling class at Central Prison, I had one student who had participated in a robbery where there were four men who were robbing, I believe it was a gas station. And two of the people went into the gas station. One of them had a gun. They were, they were just supposed to take money. And then the other two, one of whom was my student, were outside of the building and my student was the getaway driver and the other guy was the lookout. Uh, well, when the two went into the store, something happened and one of them ended up shooting the clerk at the store and, and he died. And then all of the four men who were involved were arrested and they were all charged with um, capital punishment equally, mm. uh, regardless of whether they were the one who were holding the gun, whether they were in the building at all. So my student, the getaway driver, got the same charge as all of the rest of them. And mm. he ended up getting the death penalty for being a, a getaway driver. And the actual person who shot the clerk did not get the death penalty. And so you've got situations like that. In fact, there were two people in my small journaling class in that exact situation where they had participated in a crime where someone else killed someone. They got the death penalty despite not having any direct hand in the, in the murder, while the actual person who did the killing did not get the death penalty. And so that is something that, that happens on death row all the time that that people don't even think about like why would you bring someone who never even killed anyone and put them with the worst of of the worst crimes and the reason that that happens is because uh, one we have something in the united states called the felony murder rule and under the felony murder rule if a murder is committed during the course of a felony which in most cases is a robbery or a break-in regardless of whether the murder was intentional um, at, the, at the time of the crime, all parties are held equally culpable, no matter what their role was. And so that's how you wind up with people on death row who, who actually didn't kill anyone at all. And then the reason that sometimes the actual killers are able to escape the death penalty, while someone who had a lesser role is not, is, and then you get into uh, the fact that since each person gets a separate trial, you've got factors like, well, did they have a good lawyer or not? Um, getting a lawyer is basically like a lottery system for anyone convicted of a crime. Right. You may be lucky and get a really great court appointed lawyer who cares about what they do and works really hard and, and does a good job defending you. Or you might get a court appointed lawyer who is overworked and underpaid and burnt out and has been doing this a long time and doesn't really care anymore. And that's who's in charge with your life. There's a, a huge volume of people who are representing capital defendants who are in charge with saving their lives who are not in any way doing an adequate job. So you've got differences in people's lawyers. They all have, everyone has different juries when they go to, to court. So you might have a jury who's really into the death penalty who would give it to someone who was a getaway driver and a jury that's more sympathetic who would not give it to someone who was actual shooter. 
um, the judges play a different role. The race of the person plays a role. The race of the victim plays a role. The criminal background of the defendant plays a role. The politics of the county where the murder occurs plays a role. Like we have a county here in North Carolina where they send every single person convicted of, of first degree murder, they try to get the death penalty for them, regardless of the crime. It's just an automatic capital crime if it's first degree murder. And then right next to that county, we have a county where they never pursue the death penalty, no matter how heinous the crime is. And so you could have the exact same crime occur in different counties and have completely different outcomes. So there's so many things that go into it and they lead to these outcomes that are really ridiculous if you look at it. I suppose in order to parse those differences, you have to be willing to step into this conversation that in itself splits the crowd. So you have to talk about people on death row as human beings and just doing that, people tune out, I'm sure. And so yeah, you not only have to be willing to deal with that, but then you have to get into the specifics. I, I can understand why, although unjust, why things get lost in translation and, and hardly get out to the public at all. Like what you were just talking about seems obvious to me now that you said it. Like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Not something I have thought about. And that's probably because it's not something I've had to think about. Yeah, exactly. People, uh-huh. people don't think about it. Thank you so much for everything you've offered me today and and for the book. I just bought a copy, by the way. I'll ask you the same thing as I asked George. Is there anything that we haven't discussed that you would like listeners to know or understand? The only thing I would encourage people, anyone who has a preconceived notion about someone on death row, I would really encourage them to try to get to know somebody who is on death row. It's actually pretty easy to write letters to them. Because I think a lot of our misconceptions would disappear if we actually took the time to, to get to know someone. So I would encourage people to be open-minded and, and to do that. All right. Desi Castillo, thank you so much for joining me today and for all your work. Thank you all for tuning in. You just heard my interview with Tessie Castillo, the author of the new book, Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row. You'll soon hear my interview with George Wilkerson, a co-author of the book, who called in from North Carolina's Central Prison. Just before we get to that interview, I want to remind you that our show is sponsored solely by donations from listeners like you. If you enjoy the show and can afford making a contribution, you may do so by going to patreon.com slash the social exchange. By donating $2 or more, you will receive pre-published and Patreon-exclusive content and greater rewards the more you donate. And, of course, I'll thank you by name in these segments. That's patreon.com slash thesocialexchange. Now, as promised, thank you to our new patrons. First, thank you to my family members who believe in what I do and have contributed to the show. Thank you, Tom and Linda Rhodes, and to Pete and Susan Matthew. Thank you to Carter Vermont, a nonprofit addiction program. And thank you to Susan Lennon, James Stacks, Chris L., Leon Nahufahu, Sherry Chandler, D.D. Stout, Chris Hanlon, Andre Pompel, Rick Barnett, Ann M. Earl, Inigo, John Layla Ferguson, Mary K. Villaverde, Sean, Nancy, Michelle, Regina Ferguson, Timmy Tucker, Christian, Kathleen Cochran, Diane T., Trevor, and Marjorie Israel. Support the show, get your name on this list, receive 
Patreon-specific content, and more by visiting patreon.com slash thesocialexchange. Now enjoy part two of the podcast. Calling in from North Carolina's Central Prison is George Wilkerson. You have a prepaid call. You will not be charged for this call. This call is from George Wilkerson. Now calling in from North Carolina's Central Prison is one of the co-authors of the book, George Wilkerson. George, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. Hey, I want to talk about your writing, of course. First, I actually, I want to get a sense of where you are right now, um, physically speaking. I'm almost certain that I have a preconceived notion about what your life is like, what it's like to be in prison and on death row. So forgive me, um, these introductory questions are going to seem naive, but how does it, like, just... First of all, how does it work that you're calling into an interview from the central prison? Is this kind of a a special request that you have to make, or can you make these kinds of calls frequently? Um, today it worked out because we have counts throughout the day where everyone has a lockdown. So like on death row, uh, the way it works is we have like eight pods, and each pod has uh, 24 single-man cells. So they lock us down. Each of us has an individual cell, so... We had to lock down from 1.45 to 3 o'clock for an official count. So uh, each pod only has uh, one phone. Uh, it's like a pay phone uh, that's on the wall in the day room. So it's a communal phone, so we have to, like, take turns with the phone, and everyone's got certain times throughout the day that they want to use it. So, um, you know, it worked out today. To- George, does your situation being in prison, being on death row, is it, is it surreal? Something you've come to terms with? Uh, what are the kinds of things that you're thinking about your overall experience on a day-to-day basis? Well, uh, like you said, it is kind of surreal, even though I've been here at Central Prison on Death Row since uh, December of 2006. It kind of feels like I'm dreaming a little bit, like I can't wake up from a dream. I mean, like intellectually, I understand what's going on, but it's really still at times difficult to accept that this is reality. So like I'll have these moments, like matter of fact, like yesterday where I was just standing on the top tier outside of my cell, leaning against the rail and looking down at the day room and everything just kind of came into focus, almost hyper-realistic. Like I could just see everything, like stepping outside on a, on a clear sunny day, like everything was just sharp and I just understood, I was like, man, I'm on death row. This mm. is my life, you know, how did I end up, you know, I just kind of go through that, and uh, it's a little bit overwhelming at times, so one thing that I do is I I try to stay busy, you know, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of studying and writing and exercising, I, and it's like in those moments in my downtime when I don't really have anything going on, where I'm not thinking of anything, where I'm not consciously trying to complete a project, it's like those moments where it's like a, a reality check, where it just the reality of where I am just kind of like just punches through my my own bubble, I guess. I think maybe I've created like this bubble of activity that helps me get through being where I am. I was just today starting to read the chapters that you wrote in the book, and I found some articles that you've written too. And you've kind of offered a window into your current experience and also what it was like to be you growing up, your family dynamics, your version of normal. I hope that you'll tell us a bit about your background. What was life like growing up and life before prison? 
Oh, wow, that's a great question. I think um, one of the things that probably characterized my life before prison and even now, part of it that drives me is just this feeling of confusion. I mean, just for the longest time, um, so many things were happening in my family. I have a dysfunctional family, and I didn't understand why things were happening. Why were my parents divorcing? Why were they fighting? Why did my mom disappear? Um, you know, why did we have to live in a project? Why were, you know, um, people being racist towards us? I mean, just all these things. I just honestly just did not understand why they were happening. I mean, I did the best I could to try to adapt uh, to the situation. But, like, it's only now uh, when I write and I look back and I sort of um, interrogate my life experience that I'm starting to understand. So it's like I'm going back. It's almost like being in a time machine. I know we have, we say this to ourselves probably all the time where I wish I could go back to this time knowing what I know now. And so writing for me is sort of like that time machine that allows me to go back those periods, knowing what I know now, and try to answer a lot of those questions and confusions that I still struggle with, because those things, they still impact me today, and I, I find that they drive a lot of my behaviors, um, and so like being able to go back and revisit them and apply the understanding that I have now to those situations, when I come back into the moment, when I come out of a piece, uh, like say I just wrote an essay about a period of time in my life. When I come out the end of that essay, it's like I'm back to the present moment and I'm changed by that whole process or whatever. Like the understanding that I've come out with it uh, at the end there has literally changed me. So I'm not the same person that I was when I began the essay as the person I am when I finished the essay. If that makes any sense. So tell me about your writing and specifically, tell me about how you came into contact with Tessie and how she helped you get into some of your writing, and how that writing eventually turned into a book project. Okay. Uh, well, um, I think you might know a little bit about Tessie in that uh, when we had classes and activities that, that were introduced to death row, Tessie was one of the facilitators for uh, a writing class. And I actually didn't sign up for her workshop. Um, but then, you know, I saw a lot of the other guys around me that were participants in her workshop, and they were always uh, singing praises to Tessie's uh, teaching abilities and how much they were learning. And, you know, just they just were always coming back and bragging about the class. So I actually uh, had sent word to one of the guys to ask Tessie if I could sign up and join the class. And she said yes, but then... Um, when it came time for the next class to arrive, Tessie wasn't here. She had actually gotten herself kicked out at that time. So I didn't actually get to participate in her class. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, I can't remember exactly how long it was after um, Tessie got kicked out of the prison. Um, maybe a six months or a year or something like that, where I think it was Chanton that was um, telling me about a potential uh, book idea that. Um, him and several of the other guys wanted to collaborate with Tessie on. I, and I think I said something like, man, I'd really like to do something like that. I wouldn't mind participating if it was possible. And he said, well, you know, I'll run it by Tessie and see what she says. The rest is history, so to speak. He ran that idea by Tessie and she thought it over and she allowed me the opportunity and our friendship and 
collaboration has actually all been via mail and telephone. Just through a lot of back and forth that sort of centered around writing. So writing was kind of like the one of the core aspects of our friendship. You talked about how writing was therapeutic in a sense, in a lot of ways. And in one way, it was self-enhancing. To that end, I get a sense that a lot of people believe that a person in prison, a person on death row, can no longer make a contribution to society, which seems backwards that if you can self-improve, that you wouldn't be able to. So this assumption's already wrong, given that you seem to have made a contribution to Tessie's life, and you're currently contributing to my own positive experience interviewing you right now in real time. Do you feel that your writing is a way of connecting with, contributing to the world? Oh, yes, for sure. Um, and I think what introduced me to the idea was when they started uh, the writing class here back in July of 2013, the name of the writing class uh, was called um, Writing from Captivity. And so the focus of the writing class was writings by people who were either in prison or in captivity in some form, like uh, Victor Frankl, um, you know, mm-hmm. developing his book, uh, Mankind's Search for Meaning, while he was in a concentration camp, or how a lot of the Bible itself, for example, was written by people who were in prison or were in captivity, like um, Paul in the New Testament. Some of his letters were written while he was literally in a dungeon, which was like a hole in the ground. And I thought, you know, I just had this moment where I understood, I was like, wow, this guy wrote this letter that's in the Bible from a literal hole in the ground. Yeah, how many millions and billions of people have been impacted by Paul? You have 60 seconds remaining. And continue to be impacted by it. So I just kind of understood that like, it was an empowering moment, that words really do have power. And so like, no matter where I'm at, if I'm in prison, if I have pen and paper, then I have access to that same power. And so I just understood that writing, um, kinda, it is empowering. It's therapeutic, but yeah, it's empowering. It reaches beyond the prison walls and just connect people uh, on so many levels if we're able to put those words and experiences into you have 30 seconds remaining into words on paper and share them it sounds like we only have a few seconds left george are you able to call back in yeah yeah i can call right back if you'd like me to oh yeah i'd love a little more time so okay it'd be great well i'm gonna just call you right back before this thing hangs up on us sounds good You have a prepaid call. You will not be charged for this call. This call is from George Wilkerson, an inmate at Central Prison. This call will be monitored and recorded. Hello. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, how old were you when you first came into contact with the criminal justice system? I don't know if you mean like when I was when the first time I got in trouble or when was the yeah. first encounter with the police or... Or what? Because those are different circumstances. Because I think um, early on when I was young, uh, my family moved into the projects when I was six years old. So, um, you know, I saw a lot of police activity in the neighborhood. Uh, by my father being abusive, uh, we had family members, other family members or people in the neighborhood or teachers or whatever would call the cops to recall um, child protective services. And so I saw my dad have run in with cop, you know, at an early age. But the first time I got in trouble, 
I think with the police, I was um, 12 years old. I think I had gotten into a fight or something like that. And someone called the cops and I was charged with assault. So actually, by the time I was 16, I think I had four or five assault charges just from getting into fights or whatever. Let's see, I was 12 years old and um, my dad would have just these, he would just fly into rages. What was crazy was, say I got into trouble at school for fighting or something like that. And I came home and my dad wouldn't really be upset by me getting suspended or anything like that. But uh, at home, uh, I might go to set something on the table and knock over a cup or something. He would just fly into this incoherent rage and just start beating the crap out of me or my brothers or whatever. So one night when I was 12, I, ha I can't remember what triggered my dad this night. But he flew into a rage and he started beating me. And he, um, he picked me up in the air by my throat and was just, just choking me literally to death. Uh, but then my older brother uh, happened to be uh, in uh, the room, the adjoining room, and was like watching all this unfold. And I kind of like turned toward my brother and just sort of begging him for help uh, with my eyes. So Michael, he just charges our dad and attacks our dad and gets my dad to drop me. Uh, and Michael just tells me to run while he starts fighting, fighting our dad. So I just take off running and run outside the apartment and I run down to my friend's house or his apartment in the same neighborhood. And I'm crying and I've got, you know, the bruises on my neck and my friend's mom is like, look, you've got to call the cops. You can't, you can't keep going back to do that. He's going to kill you if you go back. And so I was like, okay, you know, they talked me into it and I called the cops, I called 911 and I explained what had just happened, how my dad had just tried to kill me. And, uh, and the cops came. And so I'm thinking, well, you know, my parents are divorced. They're going to make me go live with my mom or put me in the foster care or something, you know, get me out of that, get me out of that home. Uh, and I was sort of resigned to that. But when the cops came, they picked me up, uh, two cops, it was a white cop and a black cop, actually. And so they uh, took me back up to the apartment. And my dad was standing outside and he's watching the cops pull up and he sees me and he just kind of like smirks at these cops and uh, you know the cops confront my dad right there about what had happened about the years of abuse because I just sort of poured it all out telling them about how my dad beat us all the time and you know how it culminated in this night with him trying to kill me and um, you know and they confronted him with what I said and my dad's just like yeah I did it all of it he just kind of just stands there, just like daring the cops to do something. And one of the cops just puts his hand on my back, uh, like sort of to comfort me, I guess. And he looks at my dad, and then he looks at me, and they look at each other, and then he just pushes me back towards my dad. And he says, well, you must have done something to deserve it. And just wow. shoves me to my dad, and my dad moves out the way, and I just run on back inside the apartment. And, uh, and the cops left. They didn't do anything. Uh, and after that, when my dad would be about to beat me, or maybe just after he had beat me, he would drag, he'd grab me by my ear and just snap, like drag me into the kitchen, or he'd grab me by the back of my neck and drag me into the kitchen where the house phone was. And uh, he'd pick the phone up and he'd dial 911, or he might call uh, social services, child protective services, and he'd, you know, shove the phone against my ear and say, here, call for help. And I would just take the phone and, you know, hang it back up because I knew I was like, they're not going to help me. They're not going to do anything. I'm on my own. 
Well, I think I sort of lost all faith in uh, in, uh, police after that. Maybe looking back now, I see like, okay, maybe not all cops are like that. But back then, uh, to me, they represented all cops. So you learned early on that the police weren't your friends, and they even if you called for help, they weren't going to help you. In fact, they might have been doing more harm than good. Yeah, exactly. If anyone's like me, they take their cues from Hollywood movies when it comes to imagining what prison death row is like. From you personally, what do you think are one or two most common misconceptions about what it's like in prison, what it's like in your experience? Okay, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, I know you say most people like you would have these misconceptions. Well, I want to say when I came to prison, I too had that same misconception, I guess. And I say that because, you know, we're taught that uh, death row is the worst of the worst because the people who are sentenced to die obviously are sentenced to, uh, because of murder charges. Uh, so when I came to death row, I had my mindset on, okay, I'm going to here. This is going to be a hard environment. Uh, within the pr- prison's hard enough, but like within the prison system, death row is go- it's got to be the hardest place. It's got to be the worst people who have walked the face of the earth. Uh, and so I can't take any crap off anybody. I'm going to have to fight as soon as I go in. This is just going to be like a war zone. I'm going into a jungle. You know, I just kind of like had all these ideas in my mind, but just like people are just going to be walking around with weapons, just fighting and stabbing each other. Um, but then when I got here, uh, it was actually really quiet. First of all, that was the first thing I noticed. And, um, I got here, it was uh, December 21st. So four days before Christmas. And we have this thing where you could order uh, Christmas packages. And so I had gotten here actually after they had received their Christmas package. So when I go in, I'm in my cell. There's nothing in my cell. And a couple of the guys come up to talk to me. They introduce themselves. And I'm really wary of them. You know, I've got this idea. I was like, okay, here it goes. But, you know, they were just checking on me. like asked me if I was okay, if I needed anything. Uh, I was kind of scared to accept them anything from anyone because I didn't, you know, I had been taught, uh, don't accept any gifts from anybody. <laughs> you know, they might mm-hmm. come back later to try to collect, but, um, they were actually genuinely trying to be nice. And, um, one thing I understood after a few days of being here is that most of the people had been here for decades together, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. So it was like, they were all a big family. I was a new member to the group, uh, so I was an outsider, but everyone else here, they pretty much got along. Not saying that there aren't any arguments or a fight every now and then, but within the prison system itself, death row has actually the lowest uh, rate of crime, and and especially violent crime, um, than anywhere else within maximum security prisons. Like our rate of serious, you know, guys seriously hurting each other or anything like that, it just, it just is so rare here. Uh, so that was kind of like the biggest misconception I had is that uh, these guys are not what I thought. They're just guys like if I didn't know that we were all here for murder, you wouldn't know that anyone here was here for murder. I guess the main takeaway from that, like they're just regular guys or just guys. Have you made any meaningful or deep connections with people who you're in prison with? That's a little bit harder, I think, because uh, I just... You know, we're here, we're on death row, and although there's a moratorium, a temporary moratorium on executions, like, we do know that uh, guys get executed here, 
Uh, and I think the last execution happened before I got here. But, you know, so guys were telling me all these stories uh, about how they had been here for 20 executions. And, you know, they had to watch their friends get carted away to be executed. So, you know, that kind of is instilled in me. So it's really hard for me to open up to guys around me, like to make friendships because I'm I experienced the loss of a lot of my family while I was here and a lot of my friends from the outside and it just really hurt me um, to have to go through that and I'm, I'm trying to repair some of my family relationships but it's just really hard for me to just connect um, on that I mean I'm, I'm okay with everyone and I wish everyone the best and I'll help anyone that I can but just connecting to guys on an emotional level I think it's just really difficult for me for, for you know fact of where we are but plus just as a guy uh, I don't know it's hard for me to connect with other guys emotionally and then being in prison and a lot of that stuff is misconstrued by some of the guys who are looking for romantic uh, relationships and so it's like I just kind of distance myself a little bit I wrestle with that I'll say that it's, it's not something that comes easy for me for so many reasons um, on the line of just forming connection what's the greatest thing that you've gained from meeting tessie and working on this book project well one it's been a a huge learning process i think for all of us but just that um writing can be worthwhile i mean it's therapeutic no doubt just even if i could never publish the writing i think i would still write just to help myself but i think tessie has shown me that there are people on the outside who are willing to make a lot of sacrifices and devote a lot of their time and energy to collaborating with guys like me. Now, I'm not saying Tessie is specifically helping me. I think it's more of a uh, we're on equal terms type partnership. Now, Tessie does do a lot. You know, obviously, she does all of the legwork out there. But I, I really feel like we approach each other as equal in how we relate to each other. So it's not like she's doing a charity work it's just like hey we're two writers one of us happens to be in prison well you know four of us obviously we all happen to be in prison and Tessie happens to be on the outside and so we're collaborating on this project uh, and we're trying to troubleshoot a lot of the obstacles that are unique for this type of out of prison inside prison collaboration but it just shows me that it can be done uh, and that are there are people that are willing to do it that you know people out in the world are not just all prejudiced or biased against guys in prison um, so it just has shown me that there are a lot of people that are willing to to hear what guys in prison have to say because you know it's easy to get hopeless back here guys feel like oh you know society's against me the whole world's against me no one cares about what i think and um just this experience has showed me otherwise like no the same way that we came in with misperceptions about death row in the same way that we feel like some people and society have misperceptions in that world, we also in here have misperceptions about people in society. So, you know, it's a it's a two way street there. We want people to hear us. We also have to be willing You have sixty seconds remaining. We also in here have to be willing to hear what people in society are saying. Um I just a couple more things. I, I was was I don't have enough of a window into your experience to know which things I would ask if only I did. So I wonder if you could help me. What's something that we haven't talked about that you would like my listeners to know or understand? Uh, floor is yours. 
Let's see, I think uh, the whole experience, I think, for me has been a journey. So I'm referring to just this whole process of writing. So all my life, I've been an artist. Like I started drawing, painting, and stuff like that when I was five years old. And that's kind of been the one thing that I've ever been good at in my life. It's kind of like related to the world through art. But back in um, 2013, when they posted this advertisement for a writing class. Now, up to that point, Death Row did not have access to any sorts of classes or activities like that. Just to be clear, so this was like a new thing. And uh, they were advertising this writing writing class, you know, with the focus on writing from captivity. So I had no interest in it at all. I was like, you know, I'm not a writer. I don't care about this type of thing. Um, you know, where's the art class at? But I'm a spiritual person. And, um, you know, I prayed about it and I just really felt this overpowering sense that I attribute to inspiration of God that just moved me to sign up for this writing class. And so I signed up for it and I didn't know what I was getting into. I didn't know what to expect or anything like that. But like I said, I learned about the power of words and uh, I started writing. And so like the whole process of writing has been a learning process for me. I started studying writing. Uh, I fell in love with poetry and I just, uh, I just started to see writing in this whole other life. But um, one thing that was happening through all this writing was it was changing my thoughts. Uh, it was helping me to just make sense of the world around me and just helping me to articulate my experiences. These things that I had gone through that were there beneath the surface inside of me. And so like, I could sense them, but I didn't have any words for them. And uh, just through that process of uh, participating in those programs and being on this writing journey has just changed me so much. I think I had been one of those people that would have told you that people can change, but I wasn't really sure that people could change uh, until I myself changed. And so I think one thing that I would like people to know is that people can change. Now, I'm not saying everyone will change, but given the opportunity, uh, a lot of people will make that effort to change if they have the chance to change, if they have the hope that they can change and hope that they are, that that change will be acknowledged in some way. And so this writing process has first of all changed me and proven to me beyond a doubt that it can happen. And this collaboration with Tessie has shown me that people can see that change and recognize it and acknowledge it. And so I would say that I'm not unique in any kind of way in that sense because there are a lot of other guys here who are making these efforts at change. And by us being on death row, Honestly, we really not are not doing it for any type of reward because we are, from a legal standpoint, uh, in a hopeless situation. Like, this is not going to help our cases in any way. This is not going to make our lives within the prison uh, any easier. In fact, it's making our lives more difficult because we get persecuted uh, and retaliated against because of the things that we write. You know, but I think through the writing, it makes us feel connected the world outside and prison is so good at isolating us and alienating us that writing is a way to reconnect you know to transform ourselves and to connect to people on the outside and i think i think that's what i want people to know it's like hey people can change if you give them a chance even to those who you would consider the worst of the worst given the opportunity they would change even if they're not going to get any reward out of it they just want a chance so that's what i, I guess the message that i would want to convey 
Tessie wrote somewhere, I can't remember if it was in the book or not, but she wrote something like prisons rob people of their humanity. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, on so many levels, I mean, and in so many ways, uh, it just erases your identity from the moment that you walk in the door. You're stripped of a lot of your uh, identifying marks as a person, you know, just your clothes, for example. The way that you dress is an expression of your personality. You're stripped of that and you're put into this, you know, homogenous uniform, uh, the jumpsuit that everybody wears. So it sort of like puts us all on the same, kind of like erases all of our individual identities. We're given an opus number. Now we're not called, um, you know, by our names. A lot of times we're called by our prison number. And, you know, when we, uh, when the prison staff refer to us, sometimes they call us like inmate this or inmate that or offender this or prisoner this uh, you know they don't sometimes they don't use our names even they call us by just inmate or prisoner or offender that language itself um we're kind of dehumanize us uh, but yeah then like some of the things that really make us feel human is our relationships like we define ourselves in so many ways um uh, by how we relate to others you know i'm a brother I'm a friend, I'm a son, uh, you know, I'm my mother's son, I'm my father's son, you know, just all those different relationships. And when I came here, we didn't have phone access, and it was really impractical because of distance for anyone to come visit me. Uh, and, you know, I don't come from a family of writers, so I didn't get many letters either. Uh, so I was essentially completely cut off uh, from my whole family, so it was just me here alone. Uh, feeling socially isolated in every way, uh, and it just felt like crap. Yeah, so yeah, I totally agree with that. Tessie, for you, what given what you know about George, what are the things that you're happy that you got to help him share about himself with the world? What do you think the world should know about him? <laughs> George is one of the most incredible people I know. He really is. Um, He's someone I actually will call for advice when I have things going on in my life um, that I want advice on. Uh, and I'm not just talking about book stuff, but personal issues. Um, because he's just a very self-aware and emotionally mature person. And he can help me sometimes see uh, a situation from a a vantage point that a good friend would, would help you see the situation from. Um, so I'm just incredibly grateful to have him in my life. I mean, I've actually reconnected with a long lost friends who I wasn't speaking to anymore because we had an argument over something and George was able to help me see the other person's perspective. And as a result of that, I actually reached out to that person and, and have now been able to rekindle a friendship. And I could name a lot of incidences and stories like that where he's had a positive influence on me personally, um, just by being a, a person who's there who who is very mindful and has a lot of good advice and, and helps me think about issues differently sometimes. So I'm really grateful for that. George, I feel like when something like this project happens, it's like obviously Tessie believes that you and your writing and everything about you is worth doing this project for, but it also feels like there's, um, you know, there's something really positive that she's doing for you. And I wonder 
have you been able to pay that forward to anybody? Like, have you been able to encourage others to share their stories or, or has this given you any, any ways that you're able to um, be that kind of person that Tessie is for you to other people? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, Cause like one of the things, other projects that I work on is a, um, a prisoner project called compassion. So it's a newsletter that is compassion is a nonprofit organization that distributes a newsletter to uh, all death row prisoners in America. So I'm the editor of the newsletter. And so, um, you know, guys that are on death row around the country can submit pieces to the compassion and then, you know, I'll edit them and select the pieces that go in it. You know, then it gets published and distributed and stuff like that. So um, through that, you know, some of the guys here have put their pieces in it or I've encouraged them to uh, send their copy of the compassion when they receive it to just different pen pals and stuff like that. Cause there's a lot of negative energy that comes with being on death row, just from death row itself. You know, it's a, for some, it's like a hopeless situation. And so I encourage them to send that type of stuff out so that they can hear a public response to those types of writings. And, you know, invariably, uh, when people on the outside see that type of stuff that's in there, they really, they get a lot of positive feedback uh, and it encourages guys to do more writing. And so then I offer to help them any way I can. Like, you know, some guys are working on book projects and so I'll read their whole book for them and edit it and offer them suggestions or whatever, or, you know, anyone needs any help with the writing. I just, I do everything I can. I definitely believe in, uh, you reap what you sow. And so I'm grateful for, people like Tessie who do things, who go out of their way, who go above and beyond to help guys like me. And so I try to also practice that same thing, you know, try to offer that to others. Um, and actually I have people on the outside, writers on the outside, who will contact me and um, ask me if I could, you know, read their stuff and, and help them tighten it up and stuff. So I do all that, you know. Any chance I get, yeah, I do that. Listen, George, thank you so much for taking the time to both contribute to a really wonderful book. And thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Yeah, thank you, man. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you, Tessie, too, for uh, you know making this happen. 